1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Today, you will learn more about the scientific formula for happiness, transcendental consciousness, and enlightenment. My first guest is Dr. Susan Shumsky. This interview was originally recorded in April of 2018. Let's listen to the conversation. My next guest is Dr. Susan Shumsky, who has dedicated her life to helping people take command of their lives in highly effective, powerful, and positive ways. Dr. Shumsky is the best selling author of 14 books, a pioneer in the field of human potential, and has spent 50 years teaching thousands of people meditation, prayer, affirmation, and intuition. Dr. Shumsky is a highly respected spiritual teacher, award winning author, and founder of Divine Revelation. A unique field proven technology for contacting the divine presence, hearing and testing the inner voice, and receiving clear divine guidance. For 22 years, her mentor was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was guru of the Beatles and guru of Deepak Chopra. She's also the author of her newest book, Maharishi and Me Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for joining us.
2: I'm so excited to be here with you today, Lisa.
1: Likewise, and for for many of us of a certain age, we know who Maharishi Mahesh Yogi is or was. <laughs> right, a certain age, yeah. <laughs> yes, and we'll just leave it at that, a certain exactly. <laughs> age. <laughs> but for those who are of the other certain age, they, they don't know who this person was. So right. maybe give us a little history. Well, in
2: 1959, when Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a guru from India, when he arrived on the shores of America, there was no such thing as meditation, mantra, yoga. None of that existed in the West. Within 10 years, he made those into household words. He founded something called transcendental meditation, which not, is not a generic term. In fact, it is an actual trademarked process and practice that he taught, and he taught six million people Transcendental Meditation, not personally, but through 40,000 teachers that he made or that he created through doing a lot of teacher training courses. So he's the founder of TM. He's the guru of many superstar celebrities. And in my book, Maharishi and Me, in the appendix, I've listed 250 of those celebrities. You'd be really surprised at the list.
1: Yes, it's a very long list. It is, indeed. And for those of you who are wondering, well, what the heck is Transcendental Meditation? It's, it's my understanding that this is really a mantra-based meditation. Right.
2: Yes. Uh, TM is done in the following way. You just sit down, close your eyes, and you use something called a mantra, which is a sound or a word that you repeat in your mind quietly, and that word takes you into a quieter and quieter state. It takes you from the surface level of mind into the deeper and deeper levels of the mind, and then into a state that Maharishi used to call transcendental consciousness, which is beyond the mind. Actually, it's beyond duality. It's a state of wholeness, a state of perfection, a state of very deep relaxation and deep peace. And unbounded awareness. And it's really easy to practice the technique of transcendental meditation. And anyone can do it. Maharishi used to always say that if you can think a thought, you can practice TM.
1: Mm. I have to say that I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I, I am trained in TM. I, I've done it for many years. Um, right. I, I enjoy meditation myself of, of many different kinds, and this is just one. But you say that being on the international staff, with Maharishi, was both heaven and hell because you spent several years with him. Explain what that means.
2: Right. Well, when you go to study with a spiritual master from India, there's like an unspoken contract and that contract says, and Maharishi used to say, by the way, used to say that he's the carpenter, and his disciples are pieces of wood. okay, so if you're a piece of wood being carved up by a carved <laughs> away at by a carpenter, it's a little uncomfortable because you're stepping out of your comfort zone, you're stepping out of your little envelope, your box that you've been living in and that guru is going to change you in very dramatic ways and so it's not necessarily fun to go through these ego smashing experiences that take place because spiritual enlightenment is defined as quote unquote ego less so obviously you you know in in order for you to become spiritually awakened The ego has to be smashed. And so it's a devastating and shattering experience when you're going through what is often what I often describe as open ego surgery, which is what Maharishi performed on those of us who were very close to him. I'm not talking about people who just learn TM from a teacher and they practice 20 minutes twice a day. Uh, And they go on and, you know, live their lives. Uh, TM is just a a wonderful adjunct to their lives. But those who actually go to live in close proximity with a spiritual master, they're signing up for something quite different.
1: (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I actually can
2: imagine. I only really describe the hell part. The heaven part is when he put his attention on you. It was the most heavenly experience you could ever possibly have because he had this amazing energy field and these waves of love would exude from him and it was more love than you could ever imagine and you felt this incredible waves of energy that are, that it's like they're lifting you into a higher consciousness and you're feeling these waves of bliss. I don't know how else to describe it except waves of bliss.
1: And when you talk about um, the Beatles and their relationship with Maharishi and TM, um, talk a little bit about the evolution of that relationship and then the Beatles leaving India in a huff.
2: Well, yeah, the Beatles learned Transcendental Meditation in late August of 1967, and they went to India in February of 1968, 50 years ago, and... They were very keen on meditation. In fact, they wanted to spread it throughout England. They wanted to set up meditation centers. They wanted to perhaps go on a tour to, quote unquote, turn people on to TM. And they defended Maharishi in the press uh, during the latter part of 1967, including David Frost program and other programs in England. And. They went to India, they had wonderful experiences. Ringo only stayed for a couple weeks. Paul stayed for a month and John and George stayed for two months. And then yes, they, John and George left India in a huff because there were actually three reasons why they left. One had to do with a film deal gone south. Another had to do with, apparently, uh, an apparent pass that Maharishi had made on one of the course participants, <laughs> and by the way, it had nothing to do with Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow w- had already left India a month previously. She left on March 7th, and the Beatles left on April 10th or 11th, depending on if you're in India or America. <laughs> so... Um, Yeah, they they left in the huff because of those two reasons. And then there was a third reason that came out, well, not until 2006 did the third reason actually emerge, which had to do with the possibility that Maharishi actually asked the Beatles to leave because they were taking drugs and alcohol in the ashram and that is not allowed. So it's quite a complicated story, but there are three reasons why they left India.
1: You know, speaking about um, Maharishi and bringing the work to America, because I've observed some of the old videos of his talks, and I'm thinking in particular one that took place at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching this, well, this guy was really uh, quite a marketer. You know, he was oh, one yeah. of the first that really mm-hmm. understood the power of recording those lectures and then marketing those lectures and the word of mouth, social media back in its early infancy, really.
2: Yes, I mean he recorded all everything. Uh, video recording was really—he was at the forefront of video recording, frankly. Yes. Uh, There there was an entire huge tape library. I worked on the international staff for six years. And at one point, I transcribed some of those videotapes. So he was really into videotaping and transcribing everything and making a record of everything, making tape libraries. And video was very, very important to him. And he realized, yes, he realized the importance of Using that modality to spread his message, and there was no social media back then, it was just all word of mouth kind of things. And you know, I on international staff, I worked in Europe actually, I was in Austria, Spain, Mallorca, Italy, mostly in Switzerland, and during that period of time, thousands and thousands of people would come to take teacher training courses with Maharishi. He was extremely famous in the 1970s. He was on the cover of every major magazine, Time, Saturday Evening Post, Life Look, and so on. And he was on the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show show. Uh, He was on there several times and on Merv Griffin. He was a regular guest on the Merv Griffin show as well. So yeah, he really utilized the media and he utilized the Beatles frankly as well. In fact, he, uh, he used the Beatles names without their permission to sell one, his, one of his record albums that he made. It said it was a, he announced on the record album that he was the teacher of the Beatles or guru of the Beatles, something like that, spiritual teacher of the Beatles. And also he kept, he kept <laughs> this is strange, but he kept uh, kept telling ABC or promising ABC that he would do a special with the Beatles. And he kept telling ABC over and over and over that he would do that, even though the Beatles told him again and again and again that they would not do it. Finally. Uh finally, Paul McCartney and George Harrison flew to Sweden, where Maharishi happened to be at that time, along with Peter Brown, and and told Maharishi, cut, cut it out. Stop telling ABC uh, that we're going to do a special because we're not.
1: Susan, we're going to need to take that break. And when we come back, I want to hear more. Okay, um, okay. To learn more about the work of Dr. Susan Shumsky and to learn about her book, Maharishi and me seeking enlightenment with the Beatles Guru, please visit www.divinerevelation.org on Twitter at Susan Shumsky and on Facebook, Susan Shumsky. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee.
0: To learn more about cultivating sustainable well being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we are exploring the scientific formula for happiness, transcendental consciousness, and enlightenment. We're joining a conversation that was originally had with Dr. Susan Shumsky in April of 2018. So, Susan, before the break, you were telling me, or telling us, rather, about the hot water that uh, Maharishi might have gotten himself into, promising the Beatles support in ways that they were not prepared to deliver.
2: Yeah, that's true. There was—he uh, promised an ABC special that the Beatles refused to do, and also, <laughs> strangely, he promised the Beatles Apple Corps, their um, their company, exclusive rights to do a film with him. But he had promised the same exclusive rights to someone else, to four-star productions in Los Angeles. In fact, there was a signed contract with four-star productions that gave permission to film Maharishi, exclusive permission, for the next five years. So when that film crew arrived in Rishikesh, the Beatles were stunned to find out that they were supposed to be two-bit players in Maharishi's other film film. And so they refused to leave their bungalows and refused to go to the lecture hall where the cameras were set up and the lighting was set up. And in fact, uh John Lennon woke up this morning, one morning came out of his bungalow, was at the threshold of the door, bedheaded, bleary-eyed, and there was a director and a cameraman yelling action. So oh. it was <laughs> That was uh, very strange, and that was one of the reasons why they left Rishikesh.
1: Wow. You were with the organization for several years, as you mentioned, and you departed. What what caused you to leave?
2: Yes, I was in the organization for 22 years, and I was on Maharishi's personal staff for six of those years. And I left uh, for a, a few reasons. One of the reasons was that I wanted to teach this other a form of meditation that I really enjoy and that I practice and that I teach called divine revelation so that was probably the main reason why I left uh, another reason had to do with really my my uh, home that I had bought in Fairfield which I couldn't afford to continue to pay the mortgage on in any case th- there were several reasons but I did leave and and I'm glad that I did. It was time for me to go, and uh, it was all all good.
1: Maharishi has left a, a great legacy, uh, and really, I think contributed to meditation becoming relevant today and and its popularity.
2: Yeah, he's done a lot more than that. in the In the 20th century, the world was in a completely different place. Uh, I don't know if people realize how many millions of people were killed during the bloodbath that was the 20th century, 40 million people killed in World War I, 70 million people killed in World War II. I mean, <laughs> those statistics are stunning. And then tens of millions of people killed in Vietnam and in Korea. That is not the state of our world today. Uh, The world, the entire vibration of the world has lifted significantly since mid-20th century. And I have to say that a lot of that is due to the fact that Maharishi brought meditation to the West. Now, people might think and might say, oh, well, how is that related? Well, it's very much related. As Maharishi always used to say, In order for the forest to be green, the trees must be green. In order for the world to be at peace, individuals must be at peace. So his goal was to create world peace through teaching as many people as possible to meditate so that they could be calm and peaceful. Because there's no other way to have a peaceful world other than having peaceful individuals. I completely agree with his philosophy.
1: Indeed. Talk a little bit about some of the other celebrities um, that were part of the TM movement and Maharishi devotees.
2: Well, there was Deepak Chopra, Andy Kaufman, John Gray, Doug Henning, and, you know, like hundreds of others, Jerry Seinfeld, Howard Stern, those Clint Eastwood, David Lynch, of course, who's founded the nice. David Lynch, Lynch Foundation now, which is gaining a tremendous foothold in uh, celebrities in Hollywood. A lot of celebrities have learned Transcendental Meditation through the David Lynch Foundation, Cameron Diaz and uh, Jim Carrey and...
1: Katy uh, Perry.
2: Katy Perry, Russell Brand. I mean, it just, there's a long, long list. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's amazing. So many people learn transcendental meditation. In my book, Maharishi and Me, I go into great detail about Deepak Chopra, Doug Henning, Andy Kaufman, and um, and the Beatles, uh, Maya Farrow, Mike Love, and many others.
1: And when we talk about contemporary meditation and mindfulness, for this century, and the work that you do through the Divine Revelation Method. Talk a little bit about your process and and what you guide people to discover.
2: Well, Divine Revelation is about having a connection with Spirit, with a capital S, or God, or universal Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's being able to have a direct connection with that, being able to have Two-way conversations with that divine presence within your higher self, divine beings of light, ascended masters, angels, archangels. To be able to have the experiences of divine light, divine love, divine presence, to be able to have amazing experiences of, uh, of that wholeness and that oneness that we can experience when we're in contact with our higher self. But also to be able to listen to the still small voice of God within, to be able to listen to our intuitive self, our higher self, and to be led by spirit, to be guided by that inner voice. To be able to live our true potential, express ourselves in, express our true selves, to be able to realize our true selves, who we really are, not who we think we are.
1: Which does that have to do with the diminishment of ego as well? I'm going back to what you were sharing when we first spoke.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's interesting because, in a sense, the, in a sense, you become who you really are, and who you really are is so much bigger and so much more powerful and so much more loving than the ego. So you, you become your true self, in fact, yeah.
1: And somebody who's interested in exploring more, would you suggest they read your books, that they take a a course with you or attend a workshop?
2: Yeah, I think it's best to start with the books. If you want to learn how to listen to the inner voice, I would recommend Awaken Your Divine Intuition and Divine Revelation. If you'd like to get instant healing, <laughs> For any difficulties that you have in your life, I would recommend yes. my book, Instant Healing. <laughs> and uh, I have another book on that on that process, which is called Miracle Prayer. If you'd like to learn about subtle energy, I've written a couple books on that. The Power of Auras, The Power of Chakras. If you want to learn about Ascension and Ascended Masters, the book Ascension is a fantastic book with Beautiful illustrations. I'm an artist, so I I did the illustrations, and also great, fantastic stories, really fun stories to read about ascension and ascended masters uh, throughout the world, and of course Maharishi and me seeking enlightenment with the Beatles guru. If you want to learn about the spiritual path, East, Eastern wisdom, and Maharishi, uh, what it's like to be with a spiritual master, spiritual guru. And what that process is. And you can, yeah.
1: And w- what what made you want to write this book in particular? Maharishi, me sort of m- m- <laughs> looking, looking at your life in the rearview mirror yeah. and, and a, a very impressionable period of your life as well. You were a young woman. Exactly.
2: Strangely enough, I wrote the book because a New York editor asked me to write it. That was in 1998. So I wrote the book way back then 20 years ago. But the editor not long after she asked me to write the book, she left she left McGraw Hill. So she wasn't there anymore. And so I was there I had this book and my agent tried to sell it over and over and there was something wrong with the book, the way that the angle that I had taken, the way I had written it, the way I had written the proposal Finally, once I changed the whole angle and changed the whole focus of the book, my agent was able to sell it. So strangely, that's why I wrote the book, because someone told me to write it.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's a very interesting book. I mean, I think it, it, those, those people who know, know of him or are interested in his work and the legacy um, uh, would find it interesting. Those who are new to mindfulness and meditation and want to learn more about the migration of the technology from India to the Western world would find it interesting. So I'm 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 so glad you wrote it. It's a it's a it's a good read. Um, the book we're talking about today with, with author Susan Shumsky is Maharishi and Me, Seeking Enlightenment with the Beatles Guru. We're nearly out of time and I want to give our listeners um, the contact information about where to find you and that's at www.divinerevelation.org on Twitter, at Susan Shumsky, and on Facebook, Susan Shumsky. Susan, thank you so much for spending some time with me introducing our listeners to um, Maharishi, those who don't know, um, the technology, um, Transcendental Meditation. And and maybe um, you could just mention a little bit about the evolution in your view of meditation in this next century.
2: Well, I mean, meditation is becoming more and more popular. I'm so happy to see that because I do believe that meditation can heal anything, really, and that it is the panacea of all ills. I've always believed that about meditation ever since I first learned it and first began practicing it in 1967. So I think as we move forward, there will be more and more... Uh, people meditating and thereby more and more peaceful world more and more brotherhood sisterhood uh more ecological awareness in the world more awareness about what we put into our bodies what we consume and so on so i the world is becoming better and better i'm very optimistic
1: me too and we're out of time here comes that pause we'll be right back and that is a
0: guarantee
1: Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are exploring the scientific formula for happiness, transcendental consciousness, and enlightenment. My next guest is Leonard Perlmutter. This interview was originally recorded in June of 2017. I have the great pleasure of hosting Leonard Perlmutter. Mutter in the studio this morning leonard is a pioneer in the mind body and science connection of yoga the book we are talking about today is the heart and science of yoga empowering self-care program for a happy healthy and joyful life and let me tell you a little bit about my guest today because he has quite a history in the industry and field of yoga. Leonard Polmutter is the founder and director of the American Meditation Institute and the author of Transformation, the Journal of Meditation as Mind-Body Medicine, and the award-winning book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, which we're speaking about today. We also um, know that Leonard has really been instrumental in bringing the practice of yoga To the medical field. Leonard, I'm going to let you describe all this because I'm having a rough start.
3: (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to be here and I deeply appreciate the invitation. Thank you, Lisa.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, this uh, yoga is such a powerful tool for grounding, for healing, for calming, for soothing a way to approach life. And I'm, I really applaud you for writing a book that talks about the science of yoga, because there is a science
3: to this. Well, there certainly is, and when most people hear the word yoga, the concept that comes up from their unconscious mind uh, primarily are the physical postures, Yes, which it is true that uh, uh, yoga uh, does contain physical postures, but that's really uh, just uh, one aspect of the broader science of yoga uh, that uh, is the world's oldest mind-body medicine. And the origin of all religions. Uh, yoga science provides each human being really a template to experience the happiness that you speak of, health and security in the world, uh, by providing us a scientific and a philosophical template for seeking the truth, discovering the truth, employing the truth, and then experiencing an epiphany that helps us to purify the fear and the anger and the selfish desires that are stored in our unconscious mind that only bring us pain. And the importance uh, uh, of yoga begins with a recognition that each individual must really be willing to use his or her own mind-body-sense complex as a personal laboratory uh, in which to undertake scientific experiments. And in the midst of every relationship, what we use is the bridge of yoga. We, we view yoga, which means union as a metaphoric bridge. And that bridge connects two aspects of our being. First, it, it connects our thoughts and our words and our actions with our own inner wisdom. And the hypothesis of, of yoga states that the more that we can discipline the mind and base our outer actions, thoughts, words, and deeds, on our own inner intuitive wisdom, the consequences that flow from those actions will indeed bring us increasing happiness, health, and security.
1: And when we talk about yoga and how it has become more mainstream, I think it's become more mainstream in several ways. It's you know there's yoga for everybody, you know all types and all interests. There are so many kinds of ways we can practice the physical aspect of yoga, and then the other way that I see that it has become more mainstream, and I think that you're largely responsible for this, is how it's hit the medical community and how it's affecting healthcare in in many areas. Not as many. As, as there should be yet, but I'm hoping that, you know, we are all changing this together by, by, by talking about it. Because your work has been praised by luminaries such as Dr. Dean Ornish, um, Dr. Oz, Dr. Bernie Siegel, who is a huge friend of the show, and um, Larry Dossey. So it's really, um, when the medical community starts talking about its values and virtues, people are now paying more attention.
3: Well, I agree with what you're saying. And uh, I'd like to uh, just give a little bit of a, uh, a different uh, perspective on it also, and that is that uh, uh, both the physical aspects of yoga and the meditational aspects of yoga, which uh, uh, both enhance uh, our, our health and well-being, they're really uh, uh, all one. Uh, in that, even when we do physical postures, it's really about concentration of our mental energy first and foremost. So there's an easy yoga experiment that we can all do that will uh, teach us that, that the relationship between the mind and, and the body is actually a holistic whole rather than separate. Would you uh, care to participate in, in, in that experiment with us, uh, Lisa, and, and invite your listeners to do the same?
1: I am there, and I, I invite everybody to do this because okay. I, I know it's going to be good.
3: Yeah, it's very easy. It's very simple. In fact, every aspect of yoga uh, should be easy, and uh, and it will be right for each of us. So here's the uh, experiment. It's a it's a it's a part A and a part B. Part A. I'd like you to, to to lift your right hand and arm directly over your head and bring it down. Go ahead, try that now. Done. Okay. So that, that's doable, right? Relatively easy. <laughs> easy. Okay, great. So here's part B. I'd like you to do the exact same thing you just did. However, uh, this time, I don't want you to uh, uh, engage in any thinking. I don't want you to entertain any thought. Without any thinking, allow your hand and arm to rise over your head and, and come back down again. Go ahead. Try that.
1: I'm I'm doing it, but I'm not sure. There's no thinking.
3: (laughs) That's right, because it's because you see, it's it's a trick question because uh, (laughs) uh, it's it's impossible to do. It's impossible for the hand and the arm to rise without first entertaining a thought. It's impossible for the body to do anything without first entertaining a thought. So, so what what we learn is this profound truth that. Wherever there's an action that brings about a consequence in our lives, that can bring us the happiness or the unhappiness, the health or the illness, the security or the insecurity, before we can take an action, there first and foremost has to be a movement in the mind. Mm. So, So concentrating our attention and our discipline on the mind first, to only entertain those thoughts that have the good housekeeping seal of approval of our own inner wisdom, that will determine whether or not we can fulfill the purpose of our lives without pain, without misery, and without bondage.
1: Oh, I, I get it. I get exactly what you're saying. I'm, I, I'm completely with you here because it's like wherever you focus your attention is where you find yourself. You know? That's, right. That's and, right. And with that, we're going to need to go to a break because we have a lot more to talk about. Um, the book that we are discussing today is Leonard Perlmutter's The Heart and Science of Yoga, an empowering self-care program for a happy, healthy, and joyful life. To learn more, please visit www.americanmeditation.org. On Twitter, you can find him at AMI Meditation and on Facebook, American Meditation Institute. We are going to take that break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Leonard Palmutter. Before we go, Leonard, um, just d- define one thing for me about yoga, and then we'll dash off to that break. And it's my understanding that the purpose of yoga is to prepare the mind for the meditation.
3: That's true. Uh, uh, there is a genius to the systematic procedure leading to Meditation and union with the Supreme Reality. Uh, the building blocks start with disciplines and restraints and constructive observances known as yamas and niyamas. And then the physical postures, the asanas, uh, uh, come next. Pranayama, which is control of the breath. And then, then uh, control and withdrawal of, of the senses. Pratyahara. And then training the mind in a one pointed manner. That would be concentration and dharana. That leads to meditation, and meditation leads to union with our essential nature that we refer to as God.
1: Oh, well, we're going to come back and talk about that. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that
0: is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual, greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
1: Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the scientific formula for happiness, transcendental consciousness, and enlightenment. Let's return to the conversation with Leonard Perlmutter, originally recorded in June of 2017. So Leonard, prior to going to the break, you mentioned the G word, God. And some of our listeners may not be religious folks. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about spirituality and the definition of of what you mean by God, because I think it's broader than many people might realize.
3: Well, what's so interesting and all-inclusive about yoga science is that you don't have to believe in God uh, to uh, be able to uh, practice and benefit from uh, yoga science. Uh, The G-O-D word uh, really represents any concept that we have of the supreme reality. Uh, So, Interestingly, uh, yoga science is not only uh, uh, attractive to spiritually minded people, religious minded people, but also it's it's just as applicable to uh, people who might be agnostic or atheist, because even agnostics and atheists believe in themselves. And that's all yoga science is asking us to do, is to establish a relationship with ourselves. You know, I think that uh, one of the uh, most profound yoga science teachers uh, in history uh, was uh, William Shakespeare, who uh, said uh, very clearly that above all else, to thine own self be true. Mm. And in the midst of every relationship, we're asked to take actions. And every action, according to Newton, brings about a consequence. So we already know the consequence that everybody wants, whether we're spiritually-minded people, religious-minded people, or agnostics or atheists. We want to be happy. We want to be healthy. We want to be secure. So then the question is, how are we going to get to point B from point A? And yoga science simply says, use the mind. And so we want to use the mind to determine our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And there is a function of the mind called our conscience. In, yo- in uh, Sanskrit, it's called the buddhi. And our conscience has the capacity to reflect wisdom from the super-conscious portion of the mind. The super-conscious portion is beyond the conscious. It's beyond the unconscious. It's the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations. And if oh. we can access that and employ it, we are assured that we'll be led for our highest and greatest good.
1: You often quote Albert Einstein in your work, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, about his relevance as a physicist to yoga and these practices, because um, I I, I think I get where you're going, but I think the listeners might want to know more.
3: Well, uh, Albert Einstein has been a very important uh, influence uh, uh, to help me, understand yoga science. I believe that uh, on an elemental level Albert Einstein was an intuitive yoga scientist first and foremost and one of his most profound teachings was that a problem cannot be solved on the level at which it appears. It must be solved on a higher level and so uh, the level at which it appears is this mind-body-sense complex That we, that we live through and in every single day. And when we, when we live inside the matrix, trying to fix things within the matrix, we have a problem because the matrix is defined by the mind, as we discussed earlier. In other words, we can't take an action without first entertaining a thought. And so we need to look at the mind there are four major functions of the mind. First is the manas that engages senses of sight and smell and taste and hearing and touch. Second is the ego that, that divides everything up into pairs of opposites like good and bad and pleasant and unpleasant. The third function of the mind is the unconscious. This is our memory of all, everything that we deem essential to self-preservation. Now, the problem with these three functions of the mind, is that they're not always correct. They only have a limited perspective. Now, our conscience is the fourth function of the mind. This is our discriminative faculty. It acts as a mirror that reflects wisdom from outside the matrix. Okay? It, it, it reflects the, our conscience can reflect perfect wisdom 24 7 from outside the matrix. Outside, the mind-body-sense complex outside the conscious mind, outside the unconscious mind, into the super-conscious portion of the mind. And then it has the reflective capacity to reflect it back into the matrix, back into the conscious mind, so that we can consciously be aware of the wisdom that it is suggesting to us. So when Einstein says that a problem cannot be solved on the level at which it appears, it has to be solved on a higher level, yoga science facilitates a template for us to access wisdom from a higher perspective, from the superconscious perspective. And when we change our perspective, we change our experience.
1: I agree with what you're saying wholeheartedly. I think the challenge for many people who um, are wedded to their misery or are, are comfortable in their homeostasis despite saying that they're not, the idea that you can actually harness the mind, retrain the mind, which then um, produces a completely different experience of life, is scary for some people because they begin to realize just how powerful they are. If they have the power to, power to change all of that, then did they have the power that created it in the first place?
3: You know, uh, I had a brother-in-law uh, years ago who had lower back pain, and I too had lower back pain. Uh, as a young person, I, I I held my fear in my lower back and, and it was painful. And I, I said to my brother-in-law, you know, I, I had lower back pain and it wasn't an operable condition. And I know that you uh, uh, deal with a lot of uh, back pain and you don't have an operable condition. I said, my yoga uh, practice and my meditation practice has really changed not only my mind but my body and I don't have that pain anymore would you like me to uh, teach you uh, a few practices and his response was if I didn't have the pain in my back how would I know who I was and so you're you're a hundred percent correct Lisa people uh, in in some way define themselves and limit themselves uh, by the pain that they experience they identify with it yeah and so Yoga is not for everybody, it, uh, and, and I'm not here to uh, convince anybody that what I'm saying is the truth. Uh, I am presenting this body of knowledge to people through this book, through this uh, conversation that we're having, Lisa, simply to ask them, are they interested enough to experiment? Experiment with old habits that are stored in the unconscious mind and just see what happens in your life. Be curious, uh, you know, when we're traveling down the highway uh, at uh, 55 or 65 miles an hour and somebody who's, who's driving at 90 miles an hour cuts us off and we have to slam on the brake in order to avoid an accident. And in that process, through that relationship, a bubble comes forward from my unconscious mind into my conscious mind and I am consciously aware of anger. What am I going to do with that anger? If I serve it, I'm going to poison myself with all these hormones that are uh, surging through my entire physiology. If I repress it, I'm going to become neurotic, and I'm going to be in even more pain. So the key is to sacrifice it, sacrificing uh, anything that conflicts with our inner wisdom from that higher knowledge. And if we can sacrifice anything that conflicts with our inner wisdom, That sacrifice will facilitate the mechanism for transforming that debilitating and contractive power of the anger, the power of the fear, the power of the selfish desires into strategic reserves of healing, positive energy, willpower, and creativity that we can use 24-7 in any relationship.
1: You know, you use the word sacrifice, and I, I think that we should do a show completely devoted to that because that is a very powerful word. And when one says the word sacrifice, and the reason I say we're going to have to do another show is because we're almost out of time. So I do hope you will come back because sacrifice generally connotes, you know, discomfort and, and sacrifice doesn't always have to be uncomfortable.
3: Well, that depends on uh, uh, your perspective, doesn't it? From the perspective, <laughs> tr- from the perspective, <laughs> from the perspective of the ego, from the perspective of the senses, from the perspective of uh, the unconscious mind, a sacrifice is a net loss. That's correct. However, from a different perspective, when you sacrifice something in order to base your outer actions on your inner wisdom, what you are doing with this. Contractive negative force, like fear or anger or selfish desire, is you, a sacrifice means what? It comes from the Latin, sacra fasci. You are making this debilitating, uh, contractive energy, you are making it sacred. And you are aligning yourself with your own inner wisdom. And that making sacred of our fear and our anger and selfish desire uh, transforms it. We already know from fifth grade science that ice can be uh, transformed into water and water can be transformed into gas. We know that uh, uh, crude oil doesn't work in a combustion engine. It would wreck our engine. But we do know that crude oil can be transformed into gasoline that can be used in our automobile. It's the same with fear and anger and selfish desires. Every relationship that we have that pushes our buttons that that facilitates the movement of an unconscious force into the conscious mind now makes that creative energy available to us to be transformed that's the beauty of relationship
1: ah oh, beautifully said and we are out of time today so i'm inviting you to come back will you join me again oh you bet oh perfect the, great the book that we are speaking of today is the heart And science of yoga, the American Meditation Institute's empowering self care program for a happy, healthy, joyful life by my guest today, Leonard Perlmutter. To learn more, please visit the website, AmericanMeditation.org. On Twitter, you can find him and the organization at AMI Meditation. And on Facebook, American Meditation Institute. You have been just a delight. And I, I, I'm so with you in the this mind body uh, relationship and the science of yoga and bringing it to the masses because I know firsthand how it changes lives.
3: Yeah, it's very profound, very profound. And yet it's 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 all common sense.
1: Oh, very much so. And 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 good fun.
3: It is. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, a th- thrill a minute.
1: It, it it is. Leonard, thank you so much and I wish you a lot of luck with your book tour, by the way. This is great. Thank you. Thank all you right. very much. Take care. Here come the tunes. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cyphers-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Susan Shumsky and Leonard Perlmutter, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio kbuuradiomalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.